Thank you, Mor- uh, thank you, Morgan. Good morning. How we doing? Doing good? Kind of? Maybe? All right. All right. Uh, so, uh, we're going to look at uh, Romans chapter 7. Morgan did a masterful job last week kind of setting up uh, this passage, um, which I think for me um, is a uh, formative formative uh, 18 verses that we're going to look at. Um, and basically what it does is it simply diagnoses our heart. Um, think about this week, right? Think about this week in terms of who has been arrested. <laughs> think about it in terms of singers, entertainers that have been arrested. Think about it in terms of NFL owners that have been arrested. People that are under the gun. And you have to ask, I have to ask myself, okay, where does this come from? How do we reconcile, how do we understand what is going on in the world? And do the scriptures teach us anything um, about that? Um, And so Paul begins to unpack um, our hearts. And that's that's my challenge for you this morning, is that would you allow the scriptures to unpack your heart? Um, for some of us, we don't want to be authentic. I get that. You don't want to be honest about what God says about your heart and my heart. I don't want. To, I don't want Him to be honest because I, I want to keep. Uh, you know, I want to keep this nice little, little box with a bow on top of it. Um, but He begins to talk about my heart and uh, about uh, the law. How do we reconcile our heart and the law? So this is. Chapter, Romans chapter 7, verses 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I got the great opportunity this week to go to Chattanooga. And you guys, if you've been with us for a while, you know that I get to hang out with nine or ten different pastors uh, that I grew up with kind of at RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. And we meet up in uh, Lookout Mountain, Georgia, which is where the Covenant Seminary is, Covenant College is. It's our denominational uh, college. And um, uh, on, uh, I guess it was Monday, I was flying southwest. I don't know if you've ever flown southwest, but if you're a very responsible, uh, detailed person, you sign in 24 hours before your flight takes off, right? You're really good about that of which I am not at all, right? And so if you're very good at it, you get like A, right? You're in group A, you know, whatever. I am horrible at these things, and I forget these details, and so I was like group C, like 50, which is horrible, right? It's the most, it's the worst, it's the worst letter and number you could get, but it was terrible, right? So I'm like the worst number and letter possible, and you walk on there, and you, 
kind of look down both aisles. And of course, anybody who gets their seat, you want either the aisle or the window first. And so all of these middle seats are open, right? And it just so happened that when I walked on and I looked at it, the middle seat of the first row was open. I had a choice. Am I going to make this person angry (laughs) by sitting in the middle seat? (laughs) Or am I going to maybe be more sanctified and wait, you know, maybe 10 or 12 or 15 rows down down the way? I'm not very sanctified, so I picked row number one. (laughs) Now, I I promise you, I did not know this. So I went to sit in the middle seat, which, you know, I was just trying to be as as skinny as I could possibly be, right? And try to not make any, like, hardship for anybody. And I was like this. And then this girl uh, who was on the window said, oh, you're going to sit here? I said, she said, you know what? Don't sit here. You sit in the window. Um, I'm going to sit in the middle because uh, the man at the aisle is my dad. And I was like, okay. (laughs) So, you know, I'm, I'm one of the last people on the plane, and I'm sitting on the window in the first row thinking, yes, when this baby lands, I'm one of the first persons off, and I can get my luggage quick and get out of here, right? And at the very same time, I'm thinking to myself, I'm the biggest jerk in the world. Like, I just made this girl, who's the daughter, of, you know, obviously of the father, sit in the middle seat against me. And I'm trying, I'm still trying to be skinny, but I'm not very. And um, she is sweet as can be thinking, I'm thinking to myself, I got a window seat in the first row. And I'm the biggest jerk in the planet, right? I'm the, I get the window seat on the first row, and I'm the biggest jerk on the planet. Thinking like, what would Jesus do? Like, I mean, this is a small little thing, but, but really, when you look at your life, and you look at the decisions that you make, and I know it's just a random flight to Chattanooga or to Atlanta, um, what does it matter? What does Paul say about the decisions that we make and the holiness? Does it really ever matter? What does it mean? So we're going to start Romans chapter 7, verse 7. It says this, What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was, had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Paul is saying this, look, if you don't have to look at the law, you're all good. But once you look at the law, in particular, if you look at law, the the tenth commandment, of the ten, if you were to look at ten, as opposed to, let's say, looking at thou shalt not steal. Think about that, that, you know, just that uh, commandment. Thou shalt not steal Skittles from 7-Eleven. 
Don't steal a bag of Skittles from 7-Eleven. Why? Because people can tell, right? If you're stealing Skittles, a bag of Skittles from 7-Eleven, don't steal a Snickers bar. It's obvious. But what's the deal with uh, the 10th commandment, coveting? What's the point? People can't tell. People can't tell if you drive through a neighborhood and you covet a home. Because coveting isn't external. What is it? Coveting. Coveting's internal. They can't tell if you look at somebody's car and you want it. Only God knows internally if you want it. People don't know if you look at somebody else's wife and say, I want that wife instead of my wife. I covet that wife. They don't know it. And so all of a sudden, what happens? The law is supposed to what? Diagnose your heart. And if you just use some of the plain do not kill or do not steal laws, well, people can't tell how what? How sinful my heart is or how sinful your heart is. Famously, um, in his uh, writings, the Confessions, St. Augustine's in the, in the 7th century wrote about his posse of boys. And he said this, you know, I began to look at what the Bible said and I began to look at the idea of stealing. And in the marketplace, there was a a guy that used to sell pears. And here's what he said about pears. Pears uh, weren't that... um, People didn't want pears because they were that beautiful, right? They, They weren't the most beautiful of all the fruits. And... On top of that, pears weren't the most tasty of all the fruits. But here's what we wanted to do. We wanted to steal pears. And so I got my boys, and we got in a posse, and you know what we did? We stole pears. And you know what St. Augustine said about his heart? He said, you know what? That told me, man, I got stuff. I got stuff I didn't even know about in my heart that was sinful. When I thought about stealing, you know what? I, I, I didn't think I was that bad. But you know what? It is. When you covet, no one knows when you covet. You can drive through the Eagles and West Chase and Water Chase and whatever, whatever subdivision you want to go through. No one would ever know that you would sin. Only God. Because internally, right, sin seizes up our hearts. Here's what Paul says continuing on about his own heart in verse 9. He says this, once I was alive apart from the law. What does that mean? Verse 9. When he didn't know what the Ten Commandments were, before he even read the Bible, he was like, I was free. (laughs) I didn't know what the like guardrails were for scripture. I was free, so I would just like live my life, and I was absolutely fancy, uh, fancy foot and free, and you know, I could do whatever I wanted to. I was ignorant, but when the commandment came, when I read the commandment, sin sprang to life, and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death for sin. Seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me. And through the commandment put me to death. So then, 
the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. One theologian explained it like this. Imagine if you're a next-door neighbor to somebody who's having an alarm system put in. Imagine Brink Security is coming to your house, and you ask your next-door neighbor, hey, I'm not going to be there the day that Brinks is coming in, but I need you to be there. Imagine Brink Security comes in and uh, installs a, a, a security system into your home, and you're the next-door neighbor. Now, the alarm system that Brinks installs is the law. And you're watching this happen, and it's being installed. And your, next, and your neighbor uh, is trusting you. And all of a sudden, you as the neighbor realize, you know what? I have. Oh, man. The alarm is the law, and you know what I have? I have the code. I have the code to their alarm system. And now as their next-door neighbor, when they leave as their next-door neighbor, I can go to their house, put in the code, and steal whatever I need to steal. I can do that. And that's what Paul is realizing. When I look at the law, when I look at the alarm system that's put in, I realize I'm the next-door neighbor. And you know what? I can abuse this. And you know what even more, Paul says? As the next door neighbor, I want to abuse this. And I don't know what to do with it. Because the alarm system is good. And when something bad goes wrong, the alarm system is supposed to work. And so some of us, right? Some of us think of the Ten Commandments. Some of us think of the law, right? As a hammer. It's not a hammer. Some of you walk into this church and you haven't been here very long and you think, okay, you know what I need to do? Obey the Ten Commandments. And you think of the law as a hammer. And Westtown Church is here to hammer you into, conform, into conformity as, as to what a Christian should be. And you know what? That's wrong. And if you think um, for a second that the law is a hammer and when you read the Ten Commandments, it's supposed to conform you to the ways of God You know what? You're believing a false gospel. Others of you believe this. It's not a hammer, but actually, you know what? Because we believe in grace, some of you in this room believe it's the enemy. And it's not. Some of you think that the law is the enemy to the grace of God. It isn't. And what the scriptures say is it's a signpost. Like on Dale Mabry or 275. It's a signpost. That says what? Hey, follow me and you'll get to new heavens and new earth. If you'll just follow me, that's what the law, don't kill, don't covet, please don't steal, please don't commit adultery, please don't do these things, then you know what? New heavens and new earth will come down. The law is not a hammer and it's not the enemy, but what is it? It's a signpost that says, hey, this is what God has prescribed for your life. Now, Listen to what Paul says. Did that which is good then become death to me? Which is good refers to the law. When you read the Ten Commandments, did that become death to you? He says this, by no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good To bring about what Paul calls my death. So that through the commandment, sin might become 
utterly sinful. What is he saying here? You know, I, I know that can be a little muddled. All that is saying is this. You and I, let's go to the next slide. Principally, you cannot follow the signpost. I mean, what did Jesus say murder was? It's not just the act of murdering somebody. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, anytime you hate, do you hate anybody in your family? Have you ever hated anybody? Jesus says, if you've ever hated anybody, you've murdered them. Jesus says this, if you've ever desired any other woman or man outside of your marriage, you know what you've done? You've committed adultery. And so when you look at this, you realize, oh my word, it is not possible. Non pecare. Non passe, non pecare. It is not possible to not sin. It is not possible for us to not sin. And we are in a bind. You are in a bind. Because you know what? Even if you don't cheat on the SAT exam, even if you don't cheat on your high school history exam, that you wanted to cheat is sin. How many of you can say you've never wanted to cheat? Or you've never wanted somebody else's husband? Or you've never wanted anybody else's wife. Paul is saying, I think there's very few in this room that could ever, ever say that. So what do we do now? I mean, we, I mean, it is depressing, right? So Paul continues on. He says, look, we know that the law is spiritual. And Paul, now remember this, Paul wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. He wrote almost half of the New Testament, which, which is cited as God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. It is perfect, infallible, trustworthy in every way. Here's what he, he says. We know that the law is spiritual, but he says, but I am, as Paul, I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do I do not do. But what I hate, I do. How many of you have been there? You don't want to do it, but you do it. And what you hate, and what you hate in somebody that's close to you, you don't tell them, but you do it. And you know you do it. This stuff is tough. And it diagnoses your heart and exposes all of us in this room. Nobody in this room, he's saying, can be what? Self-righteous. You do not ever classify yourself as better than your wife or your husband or your son or your daughter because you know God can see everything. There are no secrets. And if God knows everything and we're all exposed, what do you do? Verse 16, even more. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it it is sin living in me. This is the greatest Christian who ever lived, Paul, saying this, I don't do what I should do. I mean, how many things this week should you have done that you didn't do, that the Scriptures say to do? How many things that the Scriptures ask you to do, please do these things, did you not do? 
And how many things that the scriptures ask you to do? Um, did I say that right? Did not do. Maybe I said that twice. Whatever it is, inverse it and that, th- apply that. <laughs> right? <gasps> that is horrible. All of us struggle with this. Verse 18. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. And that is depressing. Paul says that about himself. The good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. How many times have you wanted to do something good? You've wanted to forgive your sister, your brother, your mother, your father, your son, your daughter, and you can't. Oh my word. Please tell me. I know that applies to every person in this room. You are ticked and you feel like you've been hurt. And Paul says, that's right. I cannot forgive. For, verse 19, I do not do the good I want to do. You're called to do. You need to do. You must do. And Paul is saying, as the great, probably the greatest Christian that's ever lived, I can't do it. But the evil I do not want to do, you know what? That evil I keep on doing. What do you do with that? Why are you here this Sunday? You know the evil that you shouldn't be doing? Paul is saying about himself, I keep doing. You know how I hated John Mark? And I told John Mark, stay away from me. You stay in Cyprus. I will take Silas, right? And John Mark, you stay with Barnabas and you stay on Cyprus. That's what Paul said, right? I'm wondering if part of that is what he felt. He hated John Mark. Why? Because when he went to Asia Minor in this bigger way, in this different way, you know what John Mark said? Nope, that's too scary for me. You know what Paul said to him? Forget it. You stay here. I don't want anything to do with you. And I'm wondering if maybe Paul in this verse is saying to himself, should I have said that? Maybe I was just, I was the judge. Ultimately, how do you view Christianity? Because, let me just tell you this. If you don't believe you are in a battle, you are lying to yourself. This is what it says, that you are fighting Satan. And if you think Christianity is about you coming to 13521 Racetrack Road for 75 minutes on a Sunday and getting some you know, motivational talk to make your Monday better, you're off. Here's what Paul says. The most articulate, deep, complex theologian ever outside of Jesus. That you and I are in a battle. So imagine this. I just want you to imagine this. You're Jesus. And you've lived 30 years. You haven't started your public ministry yet. And all of a sudden, you see this manifestation of Satan. And Satan says, we're going out to the desert. Right? And I'm going to tempt you. And they walk out to the desert. And Jesus, in every way that you've been tempted and I've been tempted, tempts Jesus. Just give me, right? 
Just, just kneel down. You're so hungry. You're so thirsty. You seem so weak. You're just a carpenter. And Jesus says, no way. I'm not. I'm never going to do that. It's the very same thing, right? As Satan telling you, hey, don't forgive your sister. Don't forgive your dad. Make sure you remember everything your dad did to you and hammer it. And when you think about him during the holidays, hammer him even more. Because that way you are separated from him. And you will feel better than your father. Or you will feel better than whoever. And so many of us live in that. And here we've got Paul saying, no, no, no. You and I are in a battle. And here's what we need to understand. We don't get it right. And if you think you get it right, you've got it wrong. Frank, if you think because you're a pastor, you've got it right, you've got it wrong. It's the very thing. It's the very thing Satan's going to try to do to you. And so verse 20 says this. Look, here's the deal. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin living in me. That does it. So when you explode on your son or your father or your daughter or your spouse, and if you've done that, Paul is saying, that's right, it's sin inside of you. You need to understand that. It's a battle what's going on inside of you. Verse 21. So Paul says about his own heart, I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, I want to be soft. I do not want to be in a fight. It's 11.40 on a Sunday morning. I didn't want to be in a fight with my spouse at 9 o'clock a.m. this morning. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to be in a fight with them all weekend. And we really haven't even talked. Or I haven't even talked to my son or my daughter or my best buddies or my employer. I didn't want to do that. But here's what I know. I want to do good, but evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. When you think about when you were saved and how much you needed Jesus, you delighted in wanting to follow the Ten Commandments. But I see another law at work in me. It's waging war against the law of my mind. And you know that. So you can come here on Sunday, you can read these scriptures, and you can feel like I I resonate with that. But you also know that there's another dynamic in your heart, and it's sin, it's evil, and it's fighting against the good. And it makes me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Some of you are there right now. And Paul was there. And you know what he did? He began to follow that, follow the rabbit hole down, right? And then he realized, even though I've written 30, or 13 of the 27 books, here's what is the truth about me. Here's what Paul says. This is powerful. Next slide. What a wretched man I am. Do you say that about yourself? Because if the greatest Christian, if you ask me, that's ever lived, has said that about himself, he sailed the seven seas. He sailed Mediterranean Sea without Google Maps, without a motor, and I was just there. And I thought to myself, are you kidding me? I mean, this is bananas. To, say, to sail, to take a month on a sea... And sail to Ephesus? To sail to Corinth? To sail to Athens? Why would, to sail to Rome? Why would you do this? 
the very same man diagnosed himself as a wretch, right? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's what we all sing during funerals. This is what Paul called himself. Can you call yourself this? And he says this, Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Verse 24. Is verse 24 allowed to be said at youth group when we break into small groups? For sixth grade girls to say, you know what? I just care about my body and I don't care about God. I care about the way I look. For you to say as a businessman in your small group at Westtown Church, I just really care that I made more money in 2019 than I did in 2018. Honestly, that's my barometer. Do you have that type of freedom to talk about your walk with God here at Westtown? Because what Paul does here is gives us a prescription for freedom. He is saying, the greatest of all Christians, I'm allowed to say, after writing half the New Testament, by the way, I'm a wretch. Can you say that? Because you know what? If you want to be free, if you want to be free from self-righteousness, if you want to be free by, from uh, this performance treadmill that you're on, you've got to be able to say this stuff. And you've got to be able to not say it generally, but say it particularly or specifically. You know what I do? I'm slothful. You know what I do? I envy everybody who drives with a better car than I drive in. Anybody who has a better looking spouse than I do, you know what I do? I, I, I feel like I need to be that person. And Paul is saying, I'm a wretch. Can you say that? If we can do that as a church, we become free. Because what's the next verse? He says, I'm a wretch, who will rescue me? <laughs> like, like, I'm undone. Everybody in this room needs to be on crazy amounts of Paxil and Zoloft and everything because we're all depressed. Because you should be. Because if, if, if this is where uh, Romans 7 ends, everybody in this room should be on suicide watch. We are all wretches. But what does Paul say in verse 25? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? 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 That's our only hope. Please tell me that's your only hope. That's the only hope we have. If you can cite yourself as a wretch, you then can sing, can shout, can freak out with verse 25. Thanks be to God. Why? Because the life... Every temptation that he went through in the desert with Satan, he overcame. Every struggle with the seven deadly sins of envy, lust, gluttony, sloth, all of them, he overcame. For you, the ransom that had to be paid was paid so you can be reconciled to God. Thanks be to God who what? Who delivers you and me through Jesus Christ our Lord. I kept asking the communicants class, This is 5th through 7th graders over the past 6 weeks. Do you believe this stuff in your heart? Or do you just show up at this 6 week class because your parents make you? And you know what I had? 
had a number of them say, you know what? You know what, Pastor Frank? I believe this stuff. And you know what other people said? Other sixth graders, fifth graders, and seventh graders said, you know what? I'm about 80% there, Pastor Frank. When I heard that, my heart was full because they were being honest. You got a 10-year-old, 11-year-old boy telling me, I'm not quite there. I'm almost there. But I'm not quite believing that Jesus has delivered me from my crap, from my junk that Paul is talking about here in verse 7. You know what I loved about that? They were making their faith their own. And they were separating it from their parents. Their parents had been great in bringing them to this point, but they were becoming individuals. And they were saying, you know what? I'm not quite there. Or some of them beautifully were saying, you know what, Pastor Frank? I am there. I want to do an interview. I want to say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Verse 25, let me sing that song for you in front of a couple elders. Be a little awkward, but I'm going to tell it to you. Where are you? Paul is trying to tell you and me, don't fake it. Don't play church. Let me diagnose your heart. You're sinful, I'm sinful. We struggle. Thanks be to God though. Because you know what? He has rescued us. When we understand this, here's what we do. We understand that what? Because he won, we won. Amen? And we have hope. And you know what? This stuff needs to be shouted. This stuff needs to be sung. This stuff, you need to walk next door and say, look, I'm a dirty, rotten scoundrel, right? I'm a yahoo, and I need help, and Jesus came and helped me. I wonder if you need that too. I am just a doofus. Jesus came for me. Are you kidding me? He came for Paul, he came for you. Where are you? Please make this personal. Romans 7. Paul. What I love about it is I want to be like Paul. I mean, I know I can't be Jesus. But when I think about Paul, I want to be like him. And he gives me this chapter. And you know what he does? He diagnoses his heart. And he gives you hope and me hope. It says, you know what? We can walk. And, and, and like Steve Brown, my professor of preaching, says, we can say... Frank, I can tell you, you know what, Frank? You're so much worse than you could ever think you are. And, Frank, I can tell you this, you're so much more loved than you could ever imagine. It's the schizophrenic gospel. You're so much worse and sinful than you could ever imagine, and you're so much more loved than possibly, you know, could have ever been hoped. When we understand that, I think we get Romans 7. And we're ready for Romans 8. Are you understanding Romans 7? Can you, in your small group, to your spouse, to your best buddy, say, you know what, pal? I'm a dirty, rotten wretch. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Right? Christ found me. He lived the perfect life. He died the death. And he rose again on Easter Sunday. That is the gospel. And is the engine for anything that happens. Where are you? Please. It's 11.50 on a Sunday morning. Please don't make this thing some kind of lecture. Please don't make this thing some kind of, you know, intellectual exercise. As I asked the kids from 5th through 7th grade on, on, we just ended two weeks ago. 
Has this dropped from your head to your heart? Don't lie to me, please. Has this dropped from your head to your heart? It's the only thing that matters. Please. Let's ask God to help us as we allow his word to form us and change us. God, we are sinners. We are wretches. And we need grace. And we know that there's a war going on inside of us. God, if we're getting on an airplane, if we're deciding to purchase some fruit, whatever it is, the smallest or biggest things in our lives, God, you know that there's a battle inside of us. And there's some people in here, God, that are going to deny that. They're going to claim ignorance. God, please break their hearts. The most self-righteous person in this room, God, who thinks they are so righteous and holy, break them. And at the very same time, God, the person who barely even walked through the doors because they thought they were such a sinner, meet them. Break both of them. Tell them how much they're loved. Show them what you've done on the cross and give them freedom. It's the only way, God, we know that. It's the only way that life transformation happens. It's the gospel. Thank you for everything in your name. Amen.